So in following on from this just brief introduction around the refuges and the precepts, I want to speak a little bit this evening about devotion. Um... You know, I started meditating in the Vipassana scene. And in the Vipassana scene, you know, we didn't even have Buddhas. And, you know, Christopher Titmus was a teacher of mine for many years. And if you lit an incense or you bowed or whatever, you'd get this unbelievable Dharma talk about the the kind of um, projections and transference that would happen with this. And he would give Dharma talks about you know, how everybody was the same and he'd bring out a roll of toilet paper and use it as an example of, you know, the fact that, you know, we all had human bodies and needed to go to the toilet and nobody was better than anybody else. And I was young when I started meditating and so for me there was something that was unbelievably refreshing about this kind of um, way of presenting the teachings. I thought it was fabulous. And then I went on a pilgrimage to India and Thailand, Nepal, Thailand. And when I was in Bodh Gaya, which is the, the holy place, the holy <coughs> pilgrimage place, it's the seat of the enlightenment of the Buddha, you know, there are many, many, many pilgrims that come there. And some of the pilgrims that come there are um, Tibetan pilgrims. But all of the pilgrims, many of the pilgrims, they come and they bow. You know, they bow to the images, they bow to the Bodhi tree, they bow to the Mahabodhi stupa. And the Tibetan Buddhists, they come on pilgrimage and they bow. So they take one step and they bow. And they take one step and they bow. Take one step and they bow. And the whole body would bow. It's not like they bow the way we bow in the Theravadan, which is kind of like, you know, very efficient and kind of compact and narrow. It was like the whole body is bowing. And then they'd stand up. And I was watching this and I was absolutely incredulous because it was like, you know, I could see what they were doing with their body, but I couldn't see where they were coming from this place to do this from. It was like, where, and I wanted to know. It's like, where, what was this? Where was this coming from that they could do this? You know, what was this about? And in the monastery culture, you know, we have Buddhas everywhere. And the culture is, is that when we came into a space where there was a Buddha, you'd bow. Okay, you bow when you when you saw a Buddha, and you bow when you left. And during we had liturgies, and we would bow. I don't know how many times during liturgies, thirty times, forty times, sixty times, eighty times. It would be many times bowing in the liturgies. And then you bow when you get up, and you bow. There's always bowing, you know. So bowing was like a big deal part of the thing, you know. And so because everybody did it, you sort of kind of find the shape that that's what you do, you know. But I didn't really yet feel where it was coming from, you know. Where is the place that you're bowing from? What is this actually about? And, you know, when I, you know, so my determination is, is I come, 
you know, I come from a family of, of um, people where there's a lot of determination in our family. And so my determination was always strong, you know, really, really strong. And I remember once I was living in, in uh, Berkeley, and I wanted to go on a retreat. And the retreat was um, in Marin County somewhere. And I decided I really wanted to go on this retreat. And so I'd made arrangements for somebody to pick me up, and somehow the arrangements fell through. So, you know, I was in my 20s. This is Berkeley. You know, it's not a great place for hitchhiking. But I was like, I'm going on this retreat. And I didn't have a car. And I knew that the only way that I could do it was to hitchhike. So I hitchhiked. And it took, like, four different rides to get there, you know? And when I got there, I remember speaking to the teacher and telling him what had happened, you know, that the ride fell through, I decided to hitchhike, and it took four or five rides to get there, and walking and all kinds of stuff. And he said, you were meant to come. And I looked at him right in his eyes. I said, I was coming whether or not I was meant to come. (laughs) 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 So it's like, you know, I come from a family where you just... You want to do something, you do it, you know? You don't wait if it's meant to happen or not. You just make it happen. You do it, you know? So what is this devotion stuff where you're surrendering into not making it happen but allowing something to support you in happening? What is that? You know, where do you feel it? How does it, how do you access it? What is that about? What does that mean, you know? So, again, in the Vipassana scene, we were brilliant about, you know, the clarity about the importance of meditation. We are brilliant about that. Brilliant about the, uh, the, um, the structure of um, sila, samadhi, and panya. Brilliant about that. But poor about devotion. You know, no kind of framework or understanding or culture around devotion, you know. So, when I came to the monastery, you know, the same kind of determination, come hell or high water, I want to be free. So I remember, I remember this kind of thing of, like, I don't care what it takes. I am prepared, no matter what it takes, I want to be free. And very shortly after me saying this or making this determination, I got chronic fatigue syndrome. Like, within, I don't know, weeks? Okay, And I don't know if you know what chronic fatigue syndrome is like, but basically, you know, your body doesn't work, your brains don't work, you don't have energy that's reliable. It's completely uh, random, you know, how it works and how it doesn't work. And I'm used to having a strong body and an incredibly willful mind, like incredibly willful mind, where I'm used to being able to do what I want to do. And I couldn't, you know, so the normal way of practicing is to is to sit upright and to focus on what's going on. And sitting upright was like, you know, I was hard. And focusing on what was going on was virtually impossible. You know, mostly it was like, you know, mashed potatoes. It was kind of like amorphous mush. You know, you just, I mean, just to even get a sense of my body was like, that was really hard, you know? I remember days and weeks just sitting on my back looking at the clouds going past the window it was like you know that was as much as I could do but I could bow and I could chant so we had liturgies of stuff that we chanted you know 
And no matter how kind of wrecked I felt, I could always bow and I could always chant. And then bowing and chanting became more than just the thing that you do when you walk in and when before you leave. It was like the sum total of everything that I could offer. I didn't have anything else. There wasn't anything else. All I had was bowing and chanting, you know. And so the Vipassana scene thing just all of a sudden went voop on its head, and I was landed into a context where the only access I had to my own practice was through devotion. To take everything that I was experiencing, this sleepiness, this drowsiness, this dullness, this confusion, this inability to focus, the not clarity about what this meant and how this worked and how this was going to be anything that was going to result in anything that was useful, and tuck it under my wings and offer it up. This is what I had. And it was like, I got it. I got it. I got the place that this comes from. I wasn't offering it to someone. I was just offering it up. This is what I had. And this is what I was offering. And it wasn't to a place or to a person. It was just offering. Just offering. Just offering. So that whole time of sickness really was really tremendously instructive in being able to touch a whole other element of practice that I had some kind of glimmer of, but no access to. And then after, I don't know, 10 years or so of living in the monastery, um, I went and spent some time at Gampo Abbey. And when I was there, I met a nun. And there were a couple of things that came together all at the same time from different kinds of directions about Kuan Yin. And Kuan Yin is the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And somebody had given me a book about Kuan Yin, and an image of Kuan Yin. And I had practices and chants and mantras about Kuan Yin. And all of a sudden, this whole component of devotion started taking on another dimension, where I began to get a feeling of that when I did these practices, and when I did the visualizations that were included in the practices, I had this sense of resting into a field of something that was not just something that I was creating myself, you know? It was something that was actually holding me, that I could relax into. And even though I know it wasn't the statue, you know, the statue was just a representation of this something, the statue was somehow related to it or connected to it or not. It, there was something that was, there was some way that these things were connected, even though it couldn't quite work out how. So there was a whole other another level of this devotion of that there's actually something that you can relax into, some other force of energy that's actually holding, that's supporting this relaxation and this surrender and this letting go. And, um, and so devotion took on another level of depth and meaning. And then the relationship with images or the relationship with mantras or the relationship with with um, special practices also took on a whole other another of, 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 of level of meaning. And so I was leaving Amravati to go on, uh, spend some time in Australia, and I remember figuring out how to make images. So somebody gave me some latex, and I made uh, an image of the 
statue that I had and then poured a whole bunch of plaster castings to give out to everybody that I knew, all the sisters and all the novices and all my friends. And on the bottom of the statues, I remember etching into them um, love is emptiness made warm. And to me, it was like that was it. It wasn't a something that I was surrendering into. It was it was it was this quality of emptiness that had a warmth to it that I could feel and experience directly that had um, some resonance with this particular quality or energy called Kuan Yin. Now, Prajnaparamita is a different energy, but has the same feeling for me, you know, in the sense that what, what this statue or what this image represents is the kind of, the, the place where everything comes from, you know. That's the place where it all originates from. So she's the mother of all the Buddhas. She is what gives rise to the awakened mind. She is what gives rise to everything, including what is masculine. So she's the feminine that includes the masculine. And everything arises from her and everything returns back into Prajnaparamita. Yeah, yeah. So for me, there was also this other sense of, yeah, well, I totally get that. You know, I totally get that. And so it's not as if there's a person that one is, I feel a devotion towards in that way. There's a sense of this, what this means and where I can feel it and how I can relate to that, you know. And then I have met people who have qualities of realization and the qualities of realization that they have had have just touched me and moved me so incredibly deeply. And even though they are human beings and they still have threads of human personality or characteristics and some sense of not being perfect or omnipotent or whatever, there's just an incredible feeling of such a sense of blessing to know them and to be in their presence and to have contact with them and to want to try and help and support and make life in any way a little bit easier for them or to make sure that they have what they need, you know. So it's not going back to the traditional model of the guru is infallible and is a perfect being in all ways that is going to, by definition of the fact that they're guru, have the right thing to say to us. It's not going back to the traditional way. But it's not throwing the devotion out the window. You know, because it because the devotional component doesn't line up with our postmodern kind of need to critique and to and to and to see the, the negative aspect of everything, okay? But it has the capacity to touch the quality of what is able to open and surrender without switching off our discernment. It has the ability to hold both. And to recognize that there's this whole quality of the spiritual path which has to do with surrendering, and letting go. And letting go into something that we are not controlling and directing. 
And yet, when I came out of England, you know, so those of you who know my story, you know that, you know, what, what happened in England was that there was a kind of massive patriarchal retrenchments and the, and, the, and the monks, you know, basically went ballistic with the sisters. And um, it was pretty brutal. And the nuns' community was decimated. Uh, more than half of the nuns left, and of the nuns that left, uh, a large proportion of them disrobed, you know. And so I came out of that, and it's like, I couldn't handle Buddhas, I couldn't handle bowing, I couldn't handle monks, you know. It's like, you know, the whole thing, it was like, <laughs> you know, just, but I didn't disrobe, you know, because for me there was a quality of, I could trust the practice and the path and somehow was willing to let it have enough space to do what it needed to do in order to see what it emerged. I wasn't convinced I wasn't going to disrobe, but I was willing to hold open the space and the question, you know, what does it look like? And so after all of that, and then I can see that, you know, you can go into a monastery where you can be conditioned to bow, but there's absolutely no connection with that quality of devotion when you're bowing. And so you become enculturated to bowing without actually connecting to bowing. And so then bowing becomes like the, the thing that you do rather than the, than the stuff that you feel. And I thought, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live where I'm enculturating people to appear to be doing something when they're completely disconnected from it. You know, And so bowing is a beautiful thing. But it's not a beautiful thing when you're not connected to it. And it's absolutely not a beautiful thing when bowing becomes a mechanism of oppression for one grade of people over another grade of people in order to assure that the other grade of people knows that they're lesser than the first grade of people. You know? So it's like, you know, it's taken a process for me to kind of hold everything that I've been through and come back to bow. You know, to recognize that I can relax into this and trust that there is a healthy component in this and not bring the stuff that is damaging. But it has got to be that people feel their way into it rather than it is dictated. And so when you create a cultural form that in order to come in you have to bow, you create a form that's dictated. And even though a form that's dictated has elements that are healthy in it, it has a massive shadow that is often unattended to, unacknowledged, and unprocessed. You know? And so I don't want to live in a place where people are being forced to disconnect from what they're feeling. And the only way I know how to do that is to encourage people to stay connected to what they're feeling. And bowing is certainly welcome, but it's not the rule. If you want to bow, you're welcome to bow. If you don't want to bow, then don't bow. But bow when you want to bow, and don't bow because it's the thing you're supposed to do. Because you're supposed to fit into the identity of what has been created in order that you're part of whatever's happening here. You know. So when I went to the Ramanaharshi ashram in southern India, it was like, oh. Yes, there's no rule about how you're supposed to practice, you know. 
There's places where you can do devotion. There's places where you can do chanting. There's places where you can do scripture. There's places where you can be silent. And there's places where you can hang out with the mountain. And nobody's... There's no forced march to Nibbana. You pick your own level. And to me it's like, yes, this is what's needed. Where you have different things that are on offer and people pick where they're at and what they need. Okay? Now the challenge with that, as I can see, is, is, is that, you know, for example, a monastic culture is a whole culture in and of itself and takes learning, you know. It actually takes learning what it is to be a monastic. It takes years of learning, you know. And so there's got to be a process where, with different levels of commitment, there's different supports to learn. And then after certain periods of time, there's greater levels of freedom to pick how you practice. And so that's what I envision, is a Buddhist monastery based on the Ramana Ashram model, with a training for people who are interested and committed to it, that then has a period of time where then afterwards they have greater and greater flexibility about how they fashion their training and what it looks like. It's a learning monastery rather than a training monastery. People pick up what they want to learn and bring that forward rather than everyone squished into a mold and kind of herded along in order to come out a particular way. Devotion is really important. And yet it is absolutely critical that we don't switch off our discernment as we're cultivating this quality, which is so valuable. Now, for those who are able to join, we're going to go for a walk in the Garden of the Gods. And for me, these rocks are like portholes to pure presence. They're like direct access. And I can go to these rocks unhealthy or distracted or distressed or upset or mixed up or confused or overwhelmed. And it all settles out. It's like they're transportations to pure presence where everything is welcome. And I reconnect with that mind that where everything is originating from and everything returns to. I love these rocks. I absolutely love these rocks. Because they constantly remind me of what this is all about and bring me there. If I have some kind of stuff going on that I'm getting mixed up with or attached to or identified with or knocked out of balance by, they bring me to that open-minded spaciousness that receives and welcomes everything. 
and returns to that stillness of being. A presence of non-identification and all-pervasive awareness. that is shared by everything and everyone. And we just forget all of the time. So when I am connected in that space, then I can see very clearly. You're using mind to rub against mind. When you are bowing, you are using an external representation of the mind to remind oneself of who one really is. There are no gurus, and everything is a guru. So, enough for a reflection this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.